0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, November 2nd, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Cara Santa Maria, Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Evening, folks. You guys all survived Halloween barely
2: yes barely mine was awesome
0: not a clown in sight where i was mine was fantastic
3: i'm already thinking about next year i've got to kind of like i've got to decompress a bit and stop thinking about i keep thinking of the mayor from nightmare before christmas jack i've got the plans for next halloween
2: (laughs) (laughs) jack i'm just a paid official I can't. I can't make decisions. I can't make decisions.
1: Did you guys see this uh, news story about this high school, Broadhead High School, where they actually they came over the the announcement announcer like first thing in the morning and announced that four of the students at the high school were killed in a car crash because because of texting. Right. Uh, and this is a small school oh. where sort of everybody knows everybody. You know what I mean? So these are like – everyone knew who these four students were that were wow. allegedly killed. And then 10 minutes later, they announced they're not really dead. That was just a trick just to make you scared about – don't text and drive.
3: What?
4: what? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Is that crazy? Yeah, great great That's a cruel, cruel
0: way to get the message
4: across. It's also cruel to ask those kids to like participate in that. Yeah. They,
1: they had the kids Whoa. participate in the deception. Like, but of course they're going to say phones. yes
4: because it's like oh the school gosh. officials asking them to do it. That's not that's
1: And then they did right. it through – it was like a running thing they did throughout the day. They kept making these fake announcements about horrible things mm. happening to their fellow students because of texting and driving. Terrible. I mean, this is this so is so
4: messed up. I
1: Ugh. mean, it's yeah. So the, the worst thing is, of course, you have the, the principal and the teachers, whatever, defending it, saying, "Well, i would rather, rather scare kids than have them die in a you know a car accident." But scare, traumatized. What are you talking about? Scare?
4: Yeah, it's like give them PTSD. Sure.
1: This is completely unacceptable. You know, level of deception. You know, these are high school students. They were you know a lot of them were traumatized. In reading about this, obviously the, the newspapers are focusing on just how irresponsible it was, uh, but they're missing the point that this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. This is pseudoscience. This is scared straight bullshit from 50 years ago. Yeah. It doesn't work. That's the thing that we should be focusing on here. These kind of scared straight tactics are not effective and it's like the people who did this at the high school had never even encountered the question of whether or not this these type of t- – they assumed that these tactics would be effective. They assumed an abject ignorance – of the last 50 years of psychological research that the, these techniques would be effective. And they were defending – they were justifying the trauma based upon the assumed effectiveness of this strategy. But anyway yeah, – sca- What the hell they base it on? Yeah, Nothing. You, it's,
4: it's just folk wisdom. It's like it's once wisdom, you throw yeah. that out the, wis- uh, out the window, you know it doesn't work. So obviously that doesn't justify it. And then you know that – a trick like this, which is so unethical. I mean, I don't know if this would even pass IRB approval as a no. psychological study. Um, maybe, go, uh, maybe, maybe if you, but I if you if they do, were underage, though,
1: <laughs> they were so probably mm-hmm. not because they were mm-hmm. underage. So you could do this with adults. Maybe if the way to sell it with an IRB would be that you would have to provide counseling after the yes, experiment that's true. to make sure that you undo any trauma, traumatic effects of the study itself.
4: And they'd know they were in a study, and they'd know that they could leave at any time. Right. All of those things are included right, yeah. now. You can't yeah. do that with kids at school. They yeah. can't just
1: leave. This was so they, totally unethical. Oh. Totally unethical.
4: And so you've got both those st- things. You throw them out the window. There's no justification. What is the justification for this?
2: And you know, the yeah. thing that really bothers me is somebody in that school system came up with this and they didn't, like, let's go ask a professional. Let's go yeah, talk. Yeah, they didn't yeah,
4: Exactly. It. exactly. Did they, they ask their school it. psychologist? I mean, maybe it's a small enough school they don't have a school psychologist, but come on. You would think there would be a district psychologist that, that is paid by their school district that is a trained professional that they could have talked to. Yeah. So, did,
2: did anybody get in trouble for this, Steve?
1: Not so far as I could see. I think it's just you know being exposed in the media. But
4: someone's going to file suit. She was. Some, oh, yeah, at sure. least one of the kids yeah. who had like a recent death in the family, or who had somebody die for the same reason, and is experiencing trauma because of that, is hopefully going to file suit. And they have a good case. a Legal precedent. Yeah, they
1: have a good case. Yeah.
4: Yeah. No. It's it
0: also crazy. undermines the authority of the people in charge. I mean, that's the kids so aren't going to believe half of the stuff now that they're going to be told. Whether oh, that's it's such true a good or not. point.
4: That's such a good point. Why would you do that? Why would you make the kids in your school not trust you?
0: Exactly. Terrible. Yeah.
1: But yeah, it, it would be. That's one of those folk wisdom things, as you say, Kara. That is so mm-hmm. deeply embedded. People assume. And this occurs in medicine as well. This is just the basic assumption that, first of all, if you give people a rational reason to change their behavior, that will be enough. Or if you have to take it up a notch, you scare them, and then they'll change their behavior. But it's just not how we operate. It's it's remarkably ineffective. And I admit that physicians fall for this as well, such as you thinking, oh, you know, smoking is going to give you lung cancer. You don't want to get lung cancer, do you? It's like okay, that works like two percent of the time. You know, that Mm. it's not an effective intervention. Which is you know weird, but that's just the way it is. That's what the research shows. You know, you you have to engage people in other ways. You have to engage them psychologically. You can't just scare them into doing things like that because they just I don't know. It's just not how we're hardwired. Yeah, Um, and it it can cause
4: way more harm than good. Yeah, Yeah, we are are. wired to have trauma replay itself in our minds when it's triggered in certain ways. Yeah, so yeah. it's absolutely dangerous not having a psychological background on all of the students who were subjected to that. yeah. And yeah, this, this isn't was, some like liberal kind of trigger warning bullshit that I'm spouting. This is like legitimate science. This no, is not absolutely. for these kids.
1: No, absolutely. And they're trying to dismiss criticism as liberal, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. mampy, pampy bullshit. But,
4: you
1: know, you, know, you know, sure, some people are too sensitive to stuff, but this was just blatantly irresponsible. It was actual pseudoscience, and they didn't vet it properly.
4: And their children; these are these yeah. are underage kids. These are underage kids that
1: they were essentially experimenting on. This was this was unethical and inappropriate. Dumbest thing of the week by far. Yep. Um, I, I'm definitely, I want to track this to see if there's any follow through on this, but it's. Uh, Sometimes you don't know because it's a local story that just hit the national press, so you just never know if there's what the follow-up is going to be. If anybody lives in close to this, you know, high school, and the local news will track it longer than the national news will. So if mm-hmm. you live in the area and you're you're privy to this story, forward it to us, and we'll do any updates if there are any. Okay.
0: Don't don't text and drive.
1: Don't text and drive. Yeah. Also, don't text and drive. Yeah. Because you'll be killed horribly. I have to give you. I have to <laughs> guarantee. The thing that makes me I'm, I'm a little sensitive to this because not too long ago my daughter in high school mm-hmm. uh her class was taken to the local emergency room where they were given a horribly scared straight yeah. you know rundown of these are all the horrible things that will happen to you if you get into a car accident we'll cut your clothes off and we'll stick ivs in you and they were trying to scare them about being in the emergency room it's like what are you doing Yeah. you're you scaring kids Watch about the emergency
4: being? room
1: and and my daughter has anxiety <laughs> and had a panic attack Oh, during during this whole thing, it's re- it was complete. I was livid. because it was, yeah. because it was if there's pseudo like a Football signs.
4: player in yeah. that group who gets a concussion, and when they offer him to go get his, you know, a scan, he's like, "No, no, no, I don't want to go to that horrible place." Exactly. Yeah, they're going to yeah. stick like, it's shit. It's crazy. In me. Yeah, so oh.
1: so irresponsible. People who are running high schools or grade schools or whatever, they I think they just get in their own little bubble and do whatever they want. You just can't do that. You have to adhere to some kind of accepted science-based standards, and it just unfortunately doesn't happen often enough. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let's move on. Kara, you're going to start us off with what's the word?
4: Yes. So the word this week is relict. R-E-L-I-C-T. About a week ago, uh, maybe a little more than that, I tweeted an article with the headline, After Pluto, New Horizons' target is a relict of creation. It's about the spacecraft's flyby of a Kuiper Belt object uh, called 2014 MU69, which is thought to be among the oldest remnants of our solar system, relatively untouched, like, A lot of other primordial uh, primordial objects like comets are generally changed over time, but this seems to be a remnant that's relatively untouched. So some folks on Twitter asked me why the word relict in the headline had a T on the end, and so I thought it would be a good idea to define it on the show because I think we're so used to seeing the word relic that I I think they actually thought that it was a typo. Um, So I wanted to define relict and also talk about the difference between the two. Have you guys all seen this word with a T at the end, relict? No. No, I don't yeah. think I
1: have. I've no. heard it in the context of a relict species.
4: Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. So there's it, there's a few different definitions in different areas of science, and it is related to relics. So let's try and parse the two out. So generally speaking, a relic is something that's been left unchanged, something that survived from an earlier period of time or primitive time, um, but it has more specific meanings in different branches. Uh, so before we get into those branches of science, there's also kind of a one-off definition. It's an antiquated term for a widow, which is kind of messed up. It's like unchanged Mm. over time. Um, But luckily, like nobody uses it that way anymore. If you look it up as a widow, you'll see it in old English writings and things like that. But it's not in modern um, dialect. So in biology and ecology, like you mentioned, Steve, a relict is an organism or species that persists when all others have gone extinct, or it's a pocket of individuals that has persisted even though historically they were widespread. So one you know, sometimes we think of living fossils as being relict. I know some people don't like that term, but like think coelacanth. That's you could totally call coelacanth a relict because it's it's lasted so long when a lot of its contemporary species have gone extinct. In geology, relics are features that stand out. Out as having not undergone metamorphosis when surrounding areas have. So they have special significance because they, they're like a window into a previous time. And in anthropology, relict people previously dominated a region, but they've been pushed out or minimized by another group. So if we think of certain tribes in the Amazon, for example, they might be a relict tribe because they're now um, in a very small space when they used to be more spread out. Um, relict can also be used in its adjective form, referring to the quality of being a relict. So if I said that relict Kuiper belt object, that is also a proper use of it. Now, a relic, of course, has religious connotations. It generally refers to a memento related to a saint or a martyr. Although it can also refer to something that has survived the test of time, it generally refers only to man-made objects that have unique historical ser- significance or practices, it's not always a tangible thing, or in fact, parts are fragments of people themselves. So like a bone fragment might be called a relic, a piece of pottery that somebody made might be called a relic. And especially if it refers to sort of a religious importance of a specific people, then you would use the term relic. But you would rarely use the term relic to refer to, you know, a dwarf planet, because mm-hmm. that wasn't man-made.
1: Yeah, Kara, also relic refers specifically to a magic item that is especially powerful...
4: Especially one
1: that was made by a god. Oh, there you go. That makes sense.
4: Yeah, Yeah. it does have this kind of, this religious overtone, but it doesn't always have to. Um, So the etymology here, relict has roots in the Latin relinquere, um, which means to leave behind. It was used in the 15th century, like I said, to describe widows as they were women left behind by the death of their husbands, but it then evolved to mean what we now think of as relic, so that's confusing. It evolved to become a religiously venerated object, but then relic relics relic with no T took over that meaning. And now the term relict, which is actually older than the word relic persists as a term related to a surviving remnant of an earlier time. So relict itself is actually a relict term. Cool.
3: Ah, I love when that happens.
4: Yeah. So Bob, you can start using that in your discussions of these old, you know, objects in the solar system. I don't like it. It's so poetic though. I like the word
1: I like relic species.
4: Yeah, it's cool.
1: The problem with the word is that everyone's going to think you're saying relic. That's the Yeah,
4: everyone thinks you yeah. it's a typo Yeah. Too, yeah. yeah. And they're like, I literally got multiple tweets that were like, why is there a T on the end of relic? And I was like, eh, Google is your friend. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> Bob, you're going to give us a quick follow-up to your uh, news item last week about the acceleration of the universe. Yeah, I'm so glad um,
3: I came across this because I was really hoping it would go in this direction, kind of suspected. So if you remember, recently I covered the news that all it was all over the place that there, there was new evidence that called the ever-increasing expansion rate of the universe into question, while some are now saying that th- that's all baloney. And one person, Tamara Davis, professor at the University of Queensland, puts forth a very compelling argument, in my opinion. Uh, real quick, so last week the idea is that special supernovas called Supernova 1A, it was showed in the late 90s that they were dimmer than they should be, basically. Uh, therefore, the universe was likely expanding at an increasing rate, which was a revolutionary Nobel Prize-winning idea and spawned the idea of dark energy uh, that makes up a mind-boggling about 72% of the entire universe. Incredible. So recently, however, researchers looked at hundreds more of these supernova 1A examples, and they applied more sophisticated statistical techniques to analyze the results, and they claim that these those results show that the evidence for accelerating expansion is only marginal and that perhaps it's not changing at all, not increasing uh, the expansion rate. Davis isn't buying uh, this at all, though. She says the new analysis barely changes the original result, but puts a different and, in my opinion, misleading spin on it. So she's saying that the results they came up with are really not significantly different than the original result from the 90s, but they have an an emphasis that's on kind of like a more extreme interpretation, or perhaps a better way to put it is that they have a f- they focus on the the outer reaches of the error bars, which uh, is why it seems so negative. So the bottom line, though, is that the results were always not far from a universe that wasn't changing its expansion rate. I mean, these are, these are very subtle things. So these new results that they're talking about really, it's not really saying anything too, too dramatic. Because like I said, the previous theory was not too far away from it in the first place. The key though is that there's supporting, um, evidence for the increasing expansion rate. There's lots of it out there. In fact, if we actually had no supernova data at all, we would still think the same thing. It's like evolution. If we had no fossils at all, we'd still know that it happened just from the genetic data, uh, for example, and there's many other many other that are like it. So that's kind of wh- wh- where this went. So, for example, Davis worked on a project with a very cool name called Wiggle Z. Uh, this looked at the pattern of the distribution of galaxies within a gigaparsec. I love that word, and, and completely isolated. This was completely isolated from any supernova data at all, and that shows an increasing expansion rate. So independent line of evidence, just like genetic data with evolution. So another awesome bit of evidence is um, this cosmic microwave background radiation which we've talked about many, many times the afterglow of the Big Bang it shows that the universe is flat, or very, very nearly flat, which means that the universe has expanded so much that we can barely detect any curvature, kind of like if you put a micro on a balloon. That balloon is clearly curved, but a little tiny microbe will have, w- to it, it would seem like it's completely flat and not curved at all. So the thing is, there isn't enough matter or dark matter to make the universe flat. This is a big problem. There's a, like a chunk of the universe... That is missing. It was a big mystery for a while when they calculated how much energy there was in dark energy. Bam! It fit perfectly. It it just fit like a puzzle piece. That's exactly what they were looking for. Now I know that in and of itself doesn't mean it's correct, but it was it was very very beautiful the way it fit. So um, and then Davis makes another good point here. She said the supernovae were actually measured uh, before the CMB. So essentially, it predicted that the CMB. Uh, would measure a flat universe, a prediction that was confirmed beautifully. I don't know if that's kind of retrodicting, but it but it, in fact it it is true. So this other supporting evidence, and there's many more. Those are just a few examples. All that evidence was taken into account before the Nobel Prize was awarded to those scientists uh, for that for that big discovery. They weren't just going by the supernova data. They, they they looked at the big picture. And also another way to look at this: it doesn't even matter even if the universe um, expanded with no change over time, say there was no accelerating expansion, essentially you'd be doing away with dark energy. Even if that were the case, the data clearly shows that there's some new physics out there that we don't know about. If there were no dark energy, perhaps we would need to modify gravitational theory, which many people um, have talked about and, and still believe. Or maybe there's some weird vacuum energy out there, or maybe there's some Q-continuum meddling going on. Uh, there's clearly some massive. Massive new science out there, and that—that's what's awesome. Whether it's dark energy yeah. or not, but chances are, I, I think dark energy is is here to stay for for so many other reasons,
1: right? So this did, didn't have as big an impact as, as the news release has made it sound like. It really didn't reverse the conclusion. It was just softening, at most, softening one of many lines of evidence that there's dark dark energy. Exactly, exactly. Okay, actually, we're going to talk about that a little bit more too with Brian Wecht, who's coming on the show. Uh, later for an interview about some interesting physics, but we'll get to that in a bit. First, some more news items. I'm going to talk about a uh, new analysis, actually a model of genetic variation among European, African, and other populations, suggesting that there may be a hominin species that we haven't discovered yet. That is in fact a relict in the genetics of modern humans. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
4: Nice. I love it. <laughs> Very cool, Steve. I also love this story. It's,
1: yeah, it's cool. So little background. Uh, have you guys ever heard of Homo heidelbergensis?
3: Yes. yes. Nope.
1: No. Yeah. So, you yeah, know, it's not, heidelbergensis doesn't get a lot of playtime. You know, we, people know about Neanderthals and, and humans, and you may have heard about the Denisovans. Right? Mm-hmm. Is that how you pronounce that, Denisovans? Yes, that's, how, that's, what, I, that, that's what I
3: say in my head. Okay, I'm not sure. Uh,
1: about three hundred to four hundred thousand years ago, uh, Homo heidelbergensis was living in Africa, and they split. This group split. One group stayed in Africa. The other group migrated into Europe and Asia, and the the group that he, that migrated into Europe evolved into Neanderthals. And one branch that migrated to Asia evolved into the Denisovans. And the the, uh, Denisovans and the Neanderthals are very closely related, but they are different enough to clearly, you know, genetically to be distinct subspecies or species that they definitely deserve, you know, their, their own designation. The Heidelbergensis that remained in Africa evolved into us, into modern humans, and then they spread throughout the world when the the modern humans homo sapiens uh traveled to europe and asia there was some hanky panky going on right there was some <laughs> well, you
0: know. they
1: exchanged genetic material whoa which <laughs> the, the technical term get, <laughs> for that is getting busy <laughs>
0: i thought it was bizet.
1: Bizet. Right. Bizet. No, it's busy <laughs> <It's bizet.
2: laughs>
1: yeah so which is it which is inevitable, right? It's what happens when you mix different populations of people together. Uh, and so that's why we all have, well, at least, you know, Europeans and related you know, populations. We're about two to 3% of, uh, Neanderthal genes in us mm-hmm. because of, of the intermixing there. Uh, but also the Denisovans got their genetics into modern people as well, especially Asians. And also the Melanesians. Melanesians live in like Papua New Guinea and Pacific Islands, right? So they live in that part of the world. But the recent analysis they did looking at Africans, Europeans, and Melanesians – Found that when they tried to explain to model the history, the genetic history of these populations, uh, they couldn't quite square the the model with the Melanesian genetics. This is really a hypothesis, but it's interesting. They say that the one thing they can think of that would explain why their model couldn't account for the modern genetics of the Melanesians is if there's another population that is not in their model that contributed genes to the Melanesians, but not to Europeans or Africans. Um, so that's where they come up with this idea, well, maybe there's some other branch out there, you know, like we, and, you know, is totally plausible. We just fairly recently discovered the Denisovans and they were just, they were characterized based upon like a tooth and a pinky.
4: Yeah, it's really common that we, you know, we, there's just so many things that never fossilized.
1: Yeah, yeah. But the reason we know that the Denisovans are a, a new species based upon a, a tooth and a pinky is, because we were able to extract DNA, and we're like, "Hey, this is not quite Neanderthal. You know, it's close. It's clearly not Homo sapiens, but it's not quite Neanderthal either. So it's some other side branch. You know, that mm-hmm. branched off close to Neanderthals, but after the split with with uh, Homo sapiens. So there, it's very plausible. It's totally plausible that there are other." Groups like the Denisovans out there that we just haven't discovered yet, uh, that could have split off at some point, developed some of their own genetic diversity, and then backbred to Homo sapiens when we spread throughout the world, and some of their genes ended up in the Melanesians. Uh, the Melanesians are probably just because of the part of the world that they're in, they do have probably the most mixed genetics of any population in the world wow not necessarily the most diversity but they they've incorporate the most you know mixture of of different uh, sources of of genes which is interesting they have some very unusual combinations of traits like they have uh, blonde afros for example some some of the population so like they they get blonde genes from somewhere and and you know genes for kinky hair from probably from african ancestry uh, Etc. So very, and they have you- really
4: dark skin, right?
1: Yeah, they're the darkest skinned people outside of Africa.
4: Yeah, that's interesting, but with blonde hair. Yeah, that's right, not very right. common.
1: Yeah, yeah. What color are so, their eyes, Steve?
4: a lot of uh, people with dark eyes, but there are some with really, really light eyes, like creepy, creepily beautiful. Amber eyes. Yeah, it's always like light, light, light blue.
1: Yeah, it's always jarring when you have somebody with very dark skin and very light eyes because you don't see it that yeah. often. You oh know. my god,
4: they're gorgeous. You yeah, can Google pretty. image search. Yeah, it's stunning, these bright yeah. blue eyes and very dark skin.
1: Yeah. So it is interesting, you know, that we, we can crunch large numbers of of genetic information, a lot, large databases of genetics and start to really have this other source of line of evidence. Right? We have fossils, of course, but now we have the genetic line of evidence to to reconstruct really a very complex history of how Human populations diverged, you know, over the last million years, and how the genes got mixed back together uh, in modern humans, you know. And it's, you know, the story is. I think it's probably going to get a lot more complicated before we get close to, you know, a, a full picture of what happened. Uh, I think we're really just at the beginning. I wouldn't be surprised if there was many other identifiable subgroup subgroups like the Denisovans out there, you know.
4: It's so fun and it's so personal. Like, I I know I've I've mentioned it on the show before, but a few years ago, I um, did the National Geographic Genographic Project, which was the DNA test. It's only mitochondrial DNA. So, of course, it's only my uh, kind of mother's lineage. I was able to see, you know, what percentage Neanderthal is in my, my mitochondrial DNA? What percentage, uh, or, or where, what, sort of wave out of Africa was I probably involved in and kind of how do I break down from these different regions? It's so cool to think Mm -hmm. about the fact that that lineage has never been broken. Right. If it's in you, it came from somewhere, and you came from these places.
1: In a way, I mean, the Neanderthals, are, in a way, are still alive, and the Denisovans yeah. are alive in us. We are them, you know, That's to, so cool. to some percentage. Yeah, exactly. And very, very quickly, there was just by coincidence, there was another news item this week that I'm just going to mention where there was, again, genetic evidence that chimpanzees and bonobos, who are two different species uh, of great ape, they exchanged genes as well in, in the very recent past. So, again, which of course is like, I think whenever we do a you know, delve deeply in the genetics of any related species, we're going to find mm-hmm. that, yeah, they were exchanging. You know, genes yeah. much later than than we would initially assume. I think that's just very common. You know, they, the the mm-hmm. division, the divide, unless there's a really clear cut like geographical division. Yeah. Um, if these species have access to each other, they're going to be exchanging genes long after they've split. You know.
4: Yeah, if they can, they will. The cool yeah. thing is that they were genetically similar enough that they could have viable offspring to pr- to continue that lineage. You know, because right. sometimes it just, it's not possible. You take two thing, two different species and they'll spontaneously abort if you mix them. But there are some things, like I remember learning that a dog and a wolf can very easily breed. Sure. Or a dog and a coyote. Like, that's not a problem at all. They call and, them
1: white fang. Yeah, I'm being like, kind of amazed by that. It's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's very cool. <laughs> <laughs> white fang. <laughs> right, okay. Evan, all right. This, yeah. This, this is... The silliest thing of the week. I still have to <laughs> give. Running, I run, have run, to run, give the, the the head fake with the your classmates are dead. The dumbest thing of the uh, week. But, <laughs> tell us about the silliest thing of the week. Oh
0: gosh, you know when we come across these things, I don't know. You can come across these things on the internet almost every week. You could almost have a segment called "What the hell is that?" <laughs> <laughs> in which you're looking at something and people are saying, "I don't know what the hell that is," and it's a oh, that's just a rock or whatever. So it becomes but in news. any case. I, I first heard about this... This on a clip from a show here in the USA called Good Morning America, oh, which is somewhat of a household name in television programming. I won't go so far as to call it news. Rather, it's a morning <laughs> variety show for people who haven't had their morning coffee yet. And I think that's being kind. In any case, they were commenting recently about a video that went viral recently. And the video first appeared on Alaska's Bureau of Land Management Facebook page. And it shows what the department called a strange thing Swimming in the chenna River in Fairbanks, as of a few days ago, it had been viewed more than 333,000 times on Facebook. So, yeah, that, that qualifies as viral, I think. Um, what it shows is this thing floating in the river, and it's an elongated thing. Most of it appears to be sort of submerged under the water surface, but its well back, for lack of a better term, is exposed just above the water surface. So I suppose if, uh, for example, you picture a snake swimming in the water, right, it, it has sort of that scale to it. Um, it has text but the part that's exposed just above the waterline is is, is is rough texture, almost a r- scaly sort of back to it.
4: Looks like and an alligator. Yeah, maybe.
0: Maybe <laughs> an alligator or something yeah. like that, but you, you would know an alligator, but this was, you know, otherwise undefined. It has these basic properties of a water creature of some sort, and of course, our human brains want to think we're seeing a living creature swimming in the water. What the hell could it actually be, though? The geniuses on Good Morning America had a few choice words for this, uh, such as, could it be the American Loch Ness Monster? Another person said, yes, I believe it. Um, Rumored relative of the Loch Ness Monster... um, Because they just altered the music and speed of the video, that doesn't change what we saw, another person said. Uh, Another said, described it as a very natural movement. And, of course, they left it by saying, you decide what it is, like all good journalists do. Yeah, so uh, online guesses you know people are guessing online what the hell this thing was uh, They've ra- it's ranged from being called a zombie salmon that's for you Bob <laughs> I guess with Halloween happening and all uh, to and it, uh, someone else called it a mysterious beast deemed the Chenna Chomper yeah because you have to have a name for the body of water that these creatures live in so what the hell is it well they think they solved this incredible mystery <laughs> silly mystery uh, because the folks from the Alaska Department of Fish and Game uh, chimed in and said, well, it's probably just a piece of rope, which is <laughs> stuck to a piece of a Ridge pier and the cold temperatures at night allows frazzle ice. That's a term I hadn't heard before. Frazzle, frazzle, like frazzle rock. No, frazil. It's a kind of loose, slushy ice that forms on water and it sticks to the top of the rope, of course, which causes the rope to float to the surface. Uh, and it looks kind of cool. It looks like it's well, it's certainly moving with the current, but it's not at all swimming. It's not swimming. But it does look like um, it's, it's swimming. Sw- <laughs> well, it it creates the ripples and stuff, but it, you know, how it, if you see a snake going through the water, you see you know a lot more dynamic movement. This one's really, it's like if we were a dead snake maybe yeah. floating in the water, it would resemble something more like that. Um, so, nothing incredible here. Cryptozoologists uh, don't need to go on an expedition up north to Fairbanks to figure out what the hell this thing is. Uh, it is a trick of our brains because we want to see a creature, strange creature in the water. it's actually uh, flotsam, as I call it, or garbage.
1: <laughs> the thing about this one, though, this it's ice. It's so obviously yeah. ice. <laughs> and in the frame, there's more ice. Yeah, there's like a big of you know, right. like <laughs> ice behind it. It's chunks of this ice floating next to a bigger chunk right. of ice. <laughs> I don't see how this became a thing. I really don't. This is just not. It's ridiculous. It's
0: because people want it to be a thing, yeah. Steve. I mean, what people talk want, about a slow people news will make happen. I mean. <laughs> 333,000 views. Could
1: this be a monster, <laughs> except for the fact that it's chunks of ice? It's all... I mean, this is just
2: ridiculous. All right. Silly. 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 All right, Jay, who's that noisy? Last week, I played this noisy. Any guesses, guys?
4: It's so short. No. no what
2: <laughs> Tried, but I
1: mean, it sounds you know. electronic, but I know it's not. <laughs> is it from a video
2: game? I...
4: That's electronic.
2: It's an animal.
4: No, it's That's not. An
2: yes, it is. The electro like,
4: Yeah, is it like a I don't know, like an electric eel or something?
2: <laughs> it's a uh, a dwarf mink whale. What a whale? Yep. Is that their s- like sonar? I mean, it's the noises that they make. So it's kind of you know when you say is it their sonar? It's their yeah. vocalization.
4: Do they use these whales? I mean, I guess all whales use it, right?
2: No. no well, they—they they, all whales, from my understanding, vocalize. But this is the only whale I've heard that makes this lightsabery sounding. You know.
1: no, I, meant,
4: I meant do all whales use sonar? Like, do they use their vocalizations to Oh, uh, I'm like, sure they like,
1: do. do. No, no, no. All, all, all whales, whales do, do not whales. do that. No. Only well, some of them are that.
2: telekinetic. That's the other thing <laughs> to keep
1: in mind. Interestingly, Jay, it's minky whale, well, not mink. Ah. Minky whale. That's minky. so cute.
2: So these, uh, these whales w- were recorded off the Great Barrier Reef. The uh, a listener sent this sound in to me because he knew that I would love it because they do sound like lightsabers a little bit. And this was the guy. I couldn't pronounce his name last week. It's Um Oivind. He didn't email me to tell me how to pronounce his name. And, I, and um, I don't know how to pronounce it. But thank you for sending that in. I loved it. Very cool. Wait, so, I, I think someone
4: did email us about that.
2: We did. Ken Wishaw. Guessed it. That's the call of the minky doodle whales. Uh, The dwarf mink whales in Australia are similar, but have higher pitch. Uh, I have swum with them, and they are awesome. That was uh, very cool. It was a non-animal sounding animal, which made me um, very interested in playing it. Hmm. Uh, This was fun. This next one, remember, I I played a Halloween-based noisy. This was the sound that I played. (laughs) Slowly. So, um, I got a ton of emails. This was great. I'm sure of course um, you did. By the way,
1: before you redo the reveal, Jay, very quickly, toothed whales tend to have sonar. Baleen whales t- do not. Interesting. Okay. Which makes sense because the toothed whales hunt prey. Yeah. And baleen whales just strain krill. Okay. Proceed. So, but I would still think they have a way to
2: communicate with each other, though, Steve. <laughs> yeah, they sing. They yeah, do sing. They, just with each they other. sonar. Yeah, they they text. So they're not using echolocation, but they, are you know, okay. sonar. But they are. They sing. Yeah. So um, many people. Many people uh, wrote in. A lot of people guessed correctly or semi-correctly. So um, the winner. Uh, this is how I'll, I'll announce to you who got it right. So that is John Carpenter's The Thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, I believe, the. Um, no, it was the first person, I think, that got killed by the thing in that in their group. So uh, No, no, Kevin, no, no. That's not the first person to get killed. Or the second person, It was the right? first
1: one maybe you know about, but yeah. Yeah, it we, was the
2: first one that they kill, and that's when it, the, the plot spills. That's when you yeah. realize we're, we're effed. So uh, Kevin Capizzi uh, wrote in and said, that's, uh, that's from John Carpenter's The Thing, and that beautifully haunted sound is Benning's death as he is mutating into the thing outside in the snow as McCready lights him a fire with gasoline and a flare. Nice nice one. Now, exactly. Kevin. Sorry to uh to be so um correcting in my next statement but he wasn't turning into the thing he was turning into Bennings the thing was turning into Bennings quite
1: completely uh, transformed yet yeah, the hands were not done yeah
2: Right but yeah you need a few more minutes he would have done it and they wouldn't have known it who wh- whether it was him or not I do have a new noisy this week and I'm going to dedicate this noisy to Kara <gasps> Really? Yeah, yeah. That, that noise hell? was sent in by a listener named Brian Binning.
4: It was very and cute.
2: It, well, that might have been one of the reasons why I picked you. <laughs> yeah, so what is that, guys? Steve, it's any guesses? Uh, it's no some idea. animal.
4: It's a baby. Ma- Dolphin. I maybe. feel like it was a baby.
2: It's a minky. Well, Some kind of insect, maybe. Maybe. You never know. You never know. Keep guessing. <laughs> Email me you at wdn <laughs> at the <skeptics> <laughs> dot org and send me in any cool noises you found this
1: week. All right. Thank you, Jay. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our
2: sponsor this week, The Great Courses. Steve, if you remember, we were on a panel with uh, David, a uh, Star Wars panel at Nexus. Yeah, The Philosophy
1: of Star Trek and Star Wars. And we pulled uh, David in because he's an actual philosopher. He has a course on The Great Courses called The Big Questions of Philosophy, and it's awesome. It's all, you know, as the title says, The Big Questions, you know, like could machines think – Are you really you? Are persons Mm. merely minds? Uh, Why should we trust reason? What is the meaning? He ends with, what is
2: the meaning of life? Of course, the answer is 42. But But he's also a profound Star Wars and Star Trek nerd geek, and he is a fanboy just like me, which means he's smart.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Guys, you too can learn all about the big questions of philosophy using the Great Courses Plus. With the Great Courses Plus, you can stream as many different lectures as you want anytime, anywhere. You can do it, you know, from your phone, from your laptop, from your tablet, even from your TV.
0: And SGU listeners should sign up for the Great Courses Plus today because they're giving you a special offer, an entire month of unlimited access to all the lectures absolutely free. So start your free month today. Go to
3: thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. That's the great courses plus PLUS.com slash skeptics.
1: All right, guys, let's get back to our show. Couple of quick emails this week before we go on to our interview. First one comes from Mike McFadden in Toronto, Canada. And Mike writes, If we ever find a way to solve aging or otherwise greatly extend human lifespans, could we run up against limits to the storage capacity of our brains? Do you think an otherwise healthy brain would get full of memories, memes, and TV theme song lyrics? Could we find that at a certain age, new experiences fully overwrite old ones? Or are our brains less like computers than I tend to assume? Thank you all for doing such great work. Even Jay.
4: Ah, um, <laughs> well, what are,
0: we, what are we up to, Steve? About ten percent of our brain capacity. What <laughs> what Shut I'm up, doing?
3: Evan. Twelve <laughs> percent. Yeah.
1: So that's a very, that's an interesting question. I've thought about that before myself. What would happen with greatly extended lifespans in terms of our memories? So, yeah, brains are not like computers. Computers are actually not a great analogy, even though we use it all the time. We talk about software and hardware and everything. Our brains are actually wetware. They're 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 a combination of Hardware and software together, the neurons both store the information and process the information. And it's analog. Our brains are analog, not digital. It's also interesting to think about. So I I think, you know, obviously we don't know what, you know, what a thousand year old human's memories would be like. Uh, And it's hard to separate out, if we look at uh, the aging brain, it's hard to separate out the fact that the brain is aging that it's biologically actually changing from the mere fact that it's been functioning for many decades you know what i mean Mm -hmm. it's not like you have the same biological brain you did when you were 20 when you're 80 it's just that you have 60 more years of experience it's also that you have an 80 year old brain and for most people you know there's fairly predictable changes that occur to our brains as we get older so uh, we just don't really, I think, have a lot of good information about this. But I think extrapolating from what we do know about how memory works and how the brain works, I think that it's best to think of it in terms of memory fade. Memories fade over time. So I think that uh, eventually you would just be in this loop, if you will, or you know, you would have a certain amount of time, a window of functional memories and older memories would fade. Of course, you have memories of memories of memories that have been reconstructed, you know, over and over and mm-hmm. over again. Uh, but it's just to be a continuous process of updating your memories and adding new information and unused memories fading. It'd be your brain would essentially, my guess is be in a steady state, if you will, of forming new memories a- as older uh, memories fade. Does that make sense?
4: I think so. Yeah. I think an interesting wrinkle to that is that. We just within the last 10 years, you know, compared to any other time in human history, we have so many more tangible, physical or digital memory triggers than we ever had, you know, like, yes, memories always fade regardless. So even if you're looking at healthy young brains, a a 17 year old brain versus a 27 year old brain, you're probably going to have less younger memories at 27 than you did at 17, and you're going to be more preoccupied with the more recent memories you know that's what's going to be flooding yeah. your mind but the fact that we save pictures of everything and we have them on our finger at our fingertips and we have audio files yeah. and, things, mm-hmm. and we have Video. it's you know that's mm-hmm. interesting because they're not really memories but they're memory triggers that we yeah. didn't used to have yeah that's Might interesting change- Might change things a little bit.
0: Now, what happens when we hook our brains up to computers and computers act as a permanent reminder of these things? All bets
3: are off. You just have to watch Black
4: Mirror. You just have to. You have to watch it. All bets are (laughs)
3: off at that point. Then it doesn't matter what the brain capacity
0: is. You have external storage. Right.
3: Yeah.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah. And
3: that's where we're at.
4: But then what how do you even do that? Because our memories are so filtered and they have so much bias in them and they you know, it's like there's not such a thing as like a core tangible recorded experience. It's like it's f- super filtered. Yeah, exactly it's so crazy. We don't see it with our eye, we see it with our mind's eye. But Kara,
2: imagine that moment though, <clears throat> that moment when the first person experiences like an outside memory. And it, and it yeah. kind of feels, you know, they, they're like, oh, yeah. wow, yeah, I can, uh, yeah, I do know that. You know what I mean? There's going to be like that recognition. That's mm. so cool.
1: Yeah. So it would, it would be fascinating to like study the memory of somebody who was 500 years old, you know, and see oh what God, differences there are.
4: Or forget it. Awesome. Once we Crazy. do have these brain human interfaces that aren't just, um, uh, you know, like neuromuscular thing right now, like it yeah. seems like we're mostly working on motor control and maybe some sensation. But once we're able to somehow connect these computer interfaces to memories, we're going to learn so much more about the human brain. Because memory is still like we get it, but there's still so many things we don't get. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And so that'll be really cool.
0: And how about dreams? We'll start recording oh, our dreams and looking back crazy. to see what we dreamt about. Yeah, oh, be that's true. a whole I do not e- want oh. it. That
4: is scary. I do not want anybody else to have access to my dreams. <laughs> that's, Can you that is a
1: massive invasion of privacy true. I know. It's well, true. It's like, reading okay. Your mind. One more oh, quick question. This is a follow-up to a chat we had last week. This comes from Christos, who writes, Hi all, you've mentioned that razor blades and candy is a bit of a Halloween myth. Not really, apparently. And then he gives a link to a new story about razor blades and Halloween candy. So I thought we'd just do a little bit of a follow-up and talk about that. The the Halloween, tampering with Halloween candy story. Is it a myth? Does it actually ever happen? Uh, so it turns out, and I did a little bit more of a deeper dive on this for this week. I mean, it doesn't really change what we talked about last week, but it is basically a myth. The, the idea that there is any uh, significant uh, episodes where people are putting foreign objects into candy, into Halloween candy, and then distributing them to trick-or-treaters. Um, so this has been uh, uh, an urban legend since the the 1970s prior to that interestingly apparently the the narrative was more about putting poison into candy and then at some point in the 70s and definitely by the eight by the early 80s that morphed into putting needles and razor blades into candy and the the urban legend got a huge boost in in the early 1980s, 1983, when there were real cases of people tampering with medication. Remember the Tylenol? tylenol.
0: Oh, like sure. Seven, seven yeah. people Huge. died. Did they
1: still? Did they ever catch the person? I don't
0: think they ever did. I think it's still an open case, isn't yeah, it? Well, if I remember correctly, Evan, I agree with you.
1: That really gave the whole urban legend a boost. But th- what does happen is there are lots of reports of people finding objects, razor blades and needles, in their Halloween candy. But when those cases are investigated, they're always questionable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, and the two features that are the most suspicious are one is that nobody was actually injured and the candy, the apple or can, the apples somehow are the target all the frequently, but the apple or the candy or whatever was most recently in the hands of a child. So it wasn't like found by a parent in their bag or an x-ray or whatever. It was the child says, Daddy, look what I found in my Halloween candy and there's a razor blade in there. But the kid, you know, has a pretty dodgy story about how he found it. (laughs) Oh, no. It turns out that almost all of the cases that have come to attention were probably pranks by the kids themselves and not distributed to them by a nefarious, you know, person to distributing tainted candy to children. Uh which makes sense because that would be a dumb thing to do. I mean, if you're handing out tainted candy from your home, it's going to be pretty easy to track you down, you know. Yeah. They're going to immediately have it down to the neighborhood and and how long is it going to take to figure out who it was that actually was tampering with the candy, you know. So it's just you know, we we would we would know about this, I think pretty easily, so i I followed the link that Christo sent me, and in fact, if you read the news story that he sent me that was a that was a uh, an unsubstantiated case that There the, the, the were reports to the police they investigated, and they found out that there was nothing to it. You have to read a little bit deeper into the article, so it and they do mention some other case which hadn 't been substantiated yet, so it 's the same kind of background noise of these possible cases that that evaporate. When they're investigated, either they're just rumor or it was a prank by the kids themselves, but no actual cases. There was, and we did mention, I think, Carrie, you brought up the fact the one, like, really documented case was uh, a father who was actually killing his own son to get yeah. the insurance, you know. Oh my
4: God. Yeah, I mean, and that's not, that's, you know, that. Yeah, we could probably uh, compare to most other cases of poisonings and things like that. It's usually the family, which is like really effed up. What's interesting, though, uh, and maybe you were going to mention this, is that we got a a handful of emails from people following up on our conversation about razor blades, where they work in hospitals that actually offered that service, where people Mm -hmm. could X-ray their candy. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Obviously, it's just a public. It's like it's just a quell years. It's a
1: public relations thing. Yeah. So there were totally. uh, I think that's. That's more in the past than now. But, yeah, yeah. there were hospitals offering this as a we well, X-ray your candy. If you're that concerned, just buy new candy. You know, seriously. You
4: gonna- <laughs> yeah, just replace your kid's candy. With, right. Like, Throw it all out just, and go yeah. buy them a whole bag. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Just don't let them know.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> do it at night. Oh, and for the record, no suspect was ever charged or convicted of the uh, Chicago Tylenol murders. Yeah, wow. Well, poisonings. Crazy. Yeah.
4: What did he – What do you know what he replaced it with or how he tampered with it? I, I, I'm saying he. Like, that's a dick move, too, could have
0: been a shit. Yeah. Oh no, but it was potassium cyanide. It's not like cyanide, that's gotcha, uh, yeah, it's not okay. not available everywhere, is it? Yeah. <laughs> oh who knows? Oof, Amazing. It's rough.
1: Okay, well let's go on with our interview. We are joined now by Brian Wecht. Brian, welcome back to the Skeptics Guide. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Brian, you are you are our go-to physicist when Bob gets in over his head, basically, <laughs> dada, dada, <laughs> and, and it is an yes. honor. <laughs> once,
3: once every one, a couple of times a decade, I need some
1: help. So there's a yep, uh, Bob, a Bob Os- <laughs> uh, often uses you as a as a behind the scenes resource, but we wanted to have you as a resource Absolutely. on the show because this is a cool but complicated bit of physics news. And I'll just let you tell us about it. What's going on here?
5: Before I get into the, the actual news, I think I need to set the stage a little bit about what, you know, what exactly is going on. So, uh, you guys have, have all heard of the, the standard model of particle physics, right? Yes.
1: Absolutely. Yes.
5: Cool. So it's just, just oh, to yes. say it real quick. Mm-hmm. It is one of the most tremendously successful theories we have in physics. It basically describes, uh, all known particles and interactions. So it's got the electrons, neutrinos, quarks. Uh, and all the, all the forces, like the strong force, the weak force, uh, the electromagnetic force, all the forces are in there except gravity. We can get back to that in a second. And it makes very particular predictions about what should happen and how the, you know, we can put in the mass of the particles and then blah, 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 turn the crank and, and test the physics of the universe. And so far, the standard model has been tremendously, tremendously successful in describing our, our world. The question is, uh, is, is that the, the final answer? Are we just done or is there more stuff out there? And it turns out there, it, even if, even with the standard model being so successful, there are a lot of open questions or outright problems with it. So just to name a couple big ones, uh, I'm sure you guys have heard of most of these in some context. I'll start with probably the most famous one, which is dark matter. Mm-hmm. So. Um, dark matter basically mm-hmm. if, if you look at what makes up the mass energy of the universe most of the the universe is not matter at all it's this thing called dark energy we don't know what that is you guys talked about it was it last week yeah on the podcast because there, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, there was a news item and tonight as well uh, huh? yeah there's a news item about that which i can express my skepticism of separately so it, even discounting that most of the matter in the universe we don't know what it is so uh, in fact about 85 percent of of matter in the universe is just this mysterious thing and we call that dark matter so the standard model like legitimately makes up fifteen percent of the matter in the universe, and the rest is just some mystery so there 's an open question of what is the rest of this stuff that 's one big problem with the standard model it just doesn 't have dark matter in it uh, another another big problem is why is there more matter than antimatter right we we know that uh, if we look out in the universe there 's there's, uh, you know, neutrons and protons, but we don't see anti-neutrons and anti-protons because they've, you know, all annihilated at some point. But why do we live in a universe that has matter and not, for example, nothing? Because if the universe were perfectly symmetric—
1: I have to say have. that is the coolest thing about the universe in my mind, the idea that— Well, one the, of them. Well, just that blows my mind more than anything else I learned about physics, was that all of the entire universe is this tiny, itty-bitty— Bitty little residue left over after all of the matter and antimatter destroyed each other. Yeah, but it was one particle per billion, right? Isn't that the leftover yeah, residue? Yeah, something like
5: that. crazy.
1: Yeah, that's crazy.
5: It's wild. And so it basically opens up a question Mm -hmm. of, if things started out, so as theoretical physicists, we want things to be as symmetric as possible. Like the, the ideal world universe in a theoretical physicist mind is everything just starts out as this perfectly symmetric ball of goop. And slowly the universe evolves into what we see today. So if the universe started out symmetric, what is it that favored matter over antimatter so that we end up in a universe, which is all made of matter, essentially? Um, and there's, that's an open question in the standard model of particle physics. We don't know why there's matter antimatter asymmetry. So that's two, right? We're at two problems. That's two. Uh, another one is neutrino masses. So we actually have a lot of evidence now that neutrinos have mass, but it turns out that neutrino masses are not naturally incorporated in the standard model. So there's the, the 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 evidence for this comes from uh, neutrino oscillations from the sun. We noticed that neutrinos, we didn't get the number. There are three types of neutrinos, electron, muon, and tau neutrinos. And many, many years ago, I think in the 60s, they did an experiment looking for uh, uh, neutrinos, and they only saw a third as many as they thought. Well, it's because neutrinos were oscillating from the kind they were able to measure, which is electron neutrinos, to the other kinds, muon and tau. And it turns out to be able to do that, They need to have some mass. So that is not something that's present in the standard model and is a big open question. That's three. Yep, that's three. Um, there, I, I wrote down like 12. (laughs) <laughs> um, but obviously I don't oh, have time to get involved. Oh, um, okay. another, another big one is inflation. Inflation is actually a little bit tricky because it's far from proven, although there's a lot of compelling evidence that it happened. And what inflation is, is it's the theory that in the very, very early universe, there was this ex, uh, uh, period of exponential expansion, like super, super fast expansion where the universe just went, basically blew up in you know a teeny teeny tiny fraction of the second it's something like I'm gonna get these numbers wrong but it was like from 10 to the minus 36 seconds to 10 to the minus 32 seconds after the Big Bang some numbers like that although I'm sure those are wrong um, and what caused inflation basically what drove that inflationary uh, epoch what what pushed kind of the universe out is another thing that's not in the standard model um, inflation may or may not be be right and most Physicists do think that it's correct, but uh, assuming it's right, we don't know what what caused it. Another problem with the standard model. Okay, that's four. That's four. Uh, five is one. This is actually the most complicated of the, uh, of the problems to explain, but it's actually a really big one. It's called the strong CP problem, and... So so, with this let 's break it down for a second. Strong means the strong interactions, so that 's the the interactions that uh, let the basically hold the proton and the neutron together they 're the interactions between quarks which are mediated by by gluons so there 's this force, the strong force which holds quarks together inside a proton or a neutron, and the particles that are kind of binding the quarks together are called gluons All right, so that 's the strong force. And it turns out that if you, uh, there are certain symmetries that we think are good or bad symmetries in, in nature. So for example, what I mean by that is if you, you might think that if you take, uh, every particle to its antiparticle, like you literally do, you know, you take neutrinos to antineutrinos, electrons to positrons, stuff like that, um, you might think that's a good symmetry in nature and that the laws of physics are all the same and everything turns out to be, uh, turns out to be basically the same predictions. Actually, that's not true. Physics is is not the same under uh, under charge conjugation. And in fact, the weak force explicitly violates charge conjugation. There's another symmetry called parity, which is basically like if we reflected all the universe in a mirror, would physics look the same? Would we get the same predictions? And the answer is no. That's also violated by the weak force. And yeah. how and the experiments and all this stuff, I'm not going to get into it because it would take a while to, to explain. But
3: ah, it's just a weak force. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Uh, <laughs> so you can, you can you can also right. ask, well, what if we did these together? Like, what if we took particles to antiparticles and reflected the universe in a mirror? Is that a good symmetry of nature? And no, that's exactly right. It's not. And again, it's violated by the weak force. But the puzzle is, you could ask, okay, is that a symmetry of the strong force, of the theory of quarks and, and gluons? And the answer is that you might think that it would be would be violated. You might think that the strong force, if you just kind of follow your nose, you write down the theory of quarks and gluons. The natural thing to write down is a theory that does not obey this symmetry, that is asymmetric. But if you actually go to measure it, which you can measure by something called the uh, electron, electric dipole moment of the, of the neutron, if you actually go to check what the, uh, whether this thing is conserved or not, whether this is a good symmetry, it turns out that CP to a very good approximation is a good symmetry of The strong force of the theory of quarks and gluons and that's the problem the question is why why is this a good symmetry when if you just kind of do the naive thing you just follow your nose and you write down all the particles and interactions you would think it would be a bad symmetry did that make sense at all
1: yeah so basically why Mm -hmm. why does the strong force have this symmetry when it really shouldn't if you're just looking at the symmetry of all the particles did i get that right
5: Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's actually a nice, easy way to say it, which is there's a when you're writing down the theory of quarks and gluons, there's a a parameter that you can put in, which is called the theta angle. Forget about the terminology. It's just some parameter. And if you were just writing it down, it would just be some number, whatever it is. And it turns out that it's essentially zero. So why is that parameter zero when it could be anything? Okay, so
1: (laughs) if only there were one small change we could make to the standard model (laughs) that would solve all of these problems at once.
5: Yep, this one weird trick. This one weird trick
1: that I learned about on the internet. (laughs) Well, wait, isn't it? Isn't it multiple? (laughs) Must be true.
3: Not just one trick. Isn't it multiple little things that are being added? You know, you got. Some some neutrinos and some new fields, so it 's not one little tweak yeah it's you know it's it's a minor tweak it's not like supersymmetry, which requires hundreds of particles, which I always found very distasteful, so it's much smaller than that, but it's not just a simple little tweak, ah, throw this particle in there and you solve all these problems it's a little bit more complicated yeah
5: so uh, l- let me thinking. let me uh, that, that's exactly one of my one of my problems with the way this is sold so in case okay so the the headline that I saw earlier this week, Evan, I think I saw it on your on your facebook feed uh first was. I I wrote this down so I'd remember it. From New Scientist, Physics Tweak solves five of the biggest problems in one go. Right. All right. So, yeah, amazing, right? Yeah. Uh, So what this is, this is referring to a a very specific paper by four authors, by Asteros, Redondo, Ringwald, and Tamarit. And I apologize if I didn't get those pronunciations correct. And basically what these guys did, these guys did something which is a time-honored tradition in particle physics, which is they took the standard model, they added a bunch of crap to it, and they saw what happened. And it turns out if you add certain <laughs> stuff, it looks very compelling to, to solve some of these problems. Um, so in fact, what they added is they added some, uh, some type of neutrinos called right-handed neutrinos, which are not present in the standard model. They added another field, which, uh, is called the axion, which turns out that it, this is, and uh, the thing is a lot of these individual parts have been known for like 30 years now. Um, so they added right, this axion right. field, which has the nice feature of simultaneously solving the strong CP problem and being a possible dark matter candidate. Dark
3: matter. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That one sounds cool. One, so two. It's true.
5: Yeah. <laughs> yeah axion <field>. axion, axi- <laughs> better axions make. are awesome, actually. They're, yeah. uh, it's, it's a very cool idea that is a, is a really interesting dark matter candidate. And there's a, a long and storied history of, uh, of axions. I think Frank Wilczek was the, the first person to, to write them down, now a Nobel Prize winner.
1: Can you explain very briefly what they are, how we can conceptualize them?
5: Yeah, so well, super lightweight. Th- right? There's a cool way of thinking about it. And again, as with everything I say, this is, you know, slightly off, but to get precise it would be far too technical right now. So remember that parameter I was talking about in uh theta. In the strong force. So, yeah, exactly, theta. So basically what it does is it takes that from being just a number you put in to a field, sort of like the Higgs field. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that is the axion field. And what it does is then you put in something where through some dynamics, it relaxes to a background value, just like the Higgs field relaxes to a background value. And if that background value is zero. then essentially, you've solved, or, or very very small, you've solved the strong CP problem because you have a way of saying, "Look, it's just this particle that's interacting, blah blah blah." But once physics kind of runs its course and the universe does what it does, then it ends up just being naturally, on average, zero,
1: mm-hmm. and
5: the strong CP problem is solved. Whatever's mm-hmm. left over, and then there's some kind of leftover fluctuations around uh, around this. If you grind it out, there's some remnant of this of this field, and that is the dark matter candidate cool that would be a
1: great that would be great babble for a science fiction show an axion field generator <laughs> <laughs> right that the, the, a, t- yeah. our ship runs <laughs> on axion fields i like that that's great and <laughs> afg of course
5: <laughs> <laughs> so b- basically what these guys i mean okay so as soon as i read this headline you know you could basically hear the sound of my eyes slamming back in my yeah. head um <laughs> Let, let, let me just be clear. Uh, okay, so I should say also they called they have a cool name for this model, which is Smash.
1: Smash, which yeah. stands
5: for so S M A S H Standard Model S M, Axion mm-hmm. A S Seesaw, which is code name for basically neutrino oscillations. They call it the seesaw mechanism, and H, which is the Higgs. So Smash, mm-hmm. cool name. Nice. These guys are. Totally legit physicists. Like I, I don't want to discredit their work in in any sense. This is a uh, a completely you know a completely legit group of group of yeah. guys based at various places. But I think that the, what the headline doesn't do is put this paper in context of the thousands of papers exactly like this written all the time. Yeah. Um. Ah. This is. I would call these guys in the, in the, in the theoretical particle physics community. They're what would be known as model builders. So they start with the standard model. You add some stuff to it and you see what happens. And this is a, this is something people have been doing for many, many years now since basically even before the standard model when they were looking for the standard model. But once the standard model kind of got locked in, then people have been trying to tweak it and figure out what, what happens. These guys are just model builders, plain and simple. They're all legit scientists. They wrote a paper, which is, is pretty cool. You know, it adds certain stuff and it has, you know, it, it does whatever it does. But does it actually solve every known problem in particle physics? Well, who who knows? I mean, th- th- there are two questions you can ask. You can ask, theoretically, does it solve the problems? Experimentally, does it solve the problems? Uh, as, as any legit physicist would, they describe some experimental, you know, signatures, like what is the stuff you should look for if their model is correct? okay, all this stuff you can, you can check. It's something nice. It's not like, uh, some models that write down that people write down where like the next, it's not the next generation of experiments that's going to do it. It's like, you know, a million years away. Could we even possibly test for it? String theory is kind of an example like that. Mm -hmm. They write down some things that you could actually maybe check, like in the very, very near future. Um, for example, the mass of the axion, that's something that, that you could potentially check. Um, they also have some inflation in their model. So you could look at the cosmic microwave background and see if their parameters line up with, uh, what the measured parameters are. Stuff like that they write down. It's a whole other story to ask, is the model theoretically consistent? And naively, they did a lot of checks. I mean, they're careful about this. It's not like they just wrote down a bunch of crap and then were like, hey, I hope this works. Um, you know, they go through and they check certain things, but these models are very, very complicated. The final paper for this is 90 pages long. Wow. So like and wow. i believe it's still i mean i hesitate to say this uh because it's not something i really care about so much but it's still in the preprint stage it hasn't been peer reviewed yet i think now that is actually how theoretical particle physics generally works these days the peer review the formal peer review process is essentially gone but um this is you know is the model totally theoretically consistent there's a lot of stuff to check there these are careful guys i'm sure you know if there was a glaring error they probably would have found it but it's possible. Also, there's some, you know, some weird quantum effect or something like that. Some correction they didn't anticipate. Something they can't calculate. Blah blah blah. It's possible that there's something in there too. So the paper still needs to be vetted by the community of theoretical physicists to see if it's even theoretically sensible. But yeah, this kind of thing just happens all the time.
1: Yeah. So that's what I was going to say. It sounds like your main point here and why this is an overhyped news item is that while yes, these uh, theoretical physicists put out a paper. With a theoretical model that might solve some problems in the standard model. This happens every Tuesday. And does this peak above the background of such papers to any degree or really is this a non news item?
5: It's, to me, it does not. And I asked a few. So when, when I was still in, in academia, I was more on the, like the string theory kind of more formal side rather than the phenomenological side. And so I asked some of my, my friends who were still, you know, in the field, Hey, is this like a thing anyone's talking about? And no one had heard of it. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's not a thing anyone really cares what? about. Yeah. It, it's because, I mean, Bob, if you go look at, so I think you guys all know the archive, ARXIV, yeah. mm-hmm. which is the preprint server. Oh, yeah. If you look for papers that solve a lot of problems, including these and maybe some others, you're going to find them. And the question ultimately is, are these consistent theories? Are they right? Are they testable? All these are, are, are open questions for many of these. And, and there's still plenty of problems that these guys don't solve. Uh, Mm -hmm. just to, to name a few, like why is the, you know, why is the Higgs, the mass of the Higgs so much less than the Planck mass? Stuff, stuff like that. They're big. Uh, theoretical and experimental problems that are just not addressed in this paper at all. So it's not like the, even if this was totally correct as presented, and I, I'm trying to be agnostic on that because, you know, it's a 90 page paper and I haven't checked every calculation. Even if it, even if they're 100% correct, which they may well be, there's still lots of problems that they didn't even solve. But this stuff, it happens all the time. And, uh, to me, it does not peak above the, the noise, as you asked. I think it's just another model building paper.
4: So that begs the question, why does a paper like this, for example, get so much more traction than anything else on the archive or anything else that's been published with, um, as you said, the more lax, but still the kind of formal peer review process? Is it just because they had a really good press release?
5: Correct. Yep, that's it. So the the rule of thumb... It's the
3: title, baby.
5: (laughs) (laughs) the, The rule of thumb, which I always try to advocate, and this is, you know, I was a theoretical physicist for like 20 years, and this was, I think, true basically without exception during my academic career was if there is a press release about a result in theoretical particle physics, nobody cares about it. Mm -hmm. And it's just the, the, the it's some university. It's not that this isn't kind of a cool result. It's not that it's not a legit paper. It's just that probably it's not such a, such a big deal. So you got to be very, very careful. Well, especially with new scientists. I'm sure I don't need to tell you guys that. Mm -hmm. Um, but if there's press releases about theoretical physics results, be super, super skeptical. I mean, I think about like my papers and my biggest paper, like the, the, the paper that I thought was the best and most, you know, influential result. I, I would not have been caught dead writing a press release for that. Like that's to get to the level of press release. I think that's a, that automatically assumes some level of hype and importance and it basically is never warranted in the papers that get it. But that's an important lesson
1: for the public is that there's a lot of science going on and what we see and hear about is determined more because of marketing, you know, rather than yep. the genuine importance of the, uh, of the the findings or the studies. We see this in medicine Absolutely. all the time. You get these preliminary, small, sure. basic science studies. It's going to cure cancer or the common cold or whatever. It's, you know, so it's this constant background noise of just misinformation that just...
4: It also comes from... It's, a, it's kind of a combination of the marketing coming out from the institution, you know, whether it's an academic institution or an industry institution, and a mixture of what do the journos that are covering it, or the editors that are um, editing the pieces that are covering it, think that they can get traction from. Yeah, right. So you've got this mixture of, okay, the university is the first layer of saying, ah, that we might be able to get some attention for this, and it'll help us bring in funding, and so we should publicize this. And then the journos say... Uh, You know what, every time I do a study or every time I report a study about this aspect of chemistry, nobody reads it. So I'm not going to bother to write about it. But, oh, this has dinosaurs and sex and chocolate. I'd better publish this immediately.
5: Yeah, Yeah, totally. And I think Mm -hmm. something that was helped here is they have a cool acronym, SMASH.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
5: You know, oh, sure. Yeah, so it was true. like, oh, oh, we can yeah. say that, you know, the Smash model, which is one re- weird trick, uh, it's actually five, they added five particles to solve five problems, essentially.
1: All right, Brian, th- good talking to you again. Yeah, you too, guys. Thanks so much. Take care. Hey, bro.
4: Thanks, Brian. It's time for science or fiction.
1: Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. We have a theme this week. The theme is material science. These are all news items about scientists developing new kinds of stuff. Awesome! I'm glad you're enthusiastic, Jay. (laughs) (laughs) You you know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) All right, care. Good. Here we go. (laughs) Item number one, new studies find that diamond nanothreads, which are even thinner than carbon nanotubes, are much more flexible and therefore have more potential applications, including possible use in building a space elevator. Item number two, scientists have created 3D printed permanent magnets that are over 100 times more powerful than traditionally made magnets of the same material. And item number three, chemists have created low cost, non-toxic paper that can be printed, completely erased, and
2: reused up to forty times. Jay, go first. Okay, this first one about the uh the diamond nano threads. This is really great idea. I mean if they could make diamond nano threads, you know, we know that diamond is an extraordinary material. You know, of course they throw in the space elevator thing and you're like, uh oh, really? Really the space elevator? But okay, you know if we're gonna build one, it's gotta be made out of something, um, and this seems like you know if diamond nano threads are, are are sharing properties with diamond, I, I don't know, man. It Sounds pretty pretty epic here. So okay, it's more flexible though. I don't know. I like it. I like it. it feels good. Okay, next one. Um, the scientists here have created this three D printed permanent permanent permanent. <laughs> Permanent.
0: Permanent.
2: Uh, uh, I thought that was like a new – that was like a Kara word or something. Per- uh,
0: There's a T on the end.
2: Magnets. They're over 100 times more powerful than traditionally made magnets of the same material. Uh, a 3D printed magnet. Huh. 3D printed technology, you say, Steve? I do believe I know something about something like this. Maybe. This is cool. Okay. I don't know. I don't know much about magnetism other than it's a field. This could be, wow, if they can customize the shape of a magnet, what could they do with that? That's pretty cool. All right, hold on. Last one. Chemists have created a low-cost, non-toxic paper that can be printed, completely erased and reused up to 40 times. Going on my vast knowledge of existing printer paper and how, how it's infused with ink, they have to come up with a way to get rid of the imprint. Now, if, it's, if, it's sh- if the ink is shot out and it's like absorbed by the paper, they're not getting it off. And there's, then we have paper that's heat-treated paper. Ah, wow, I don't know about that one. That one seems to be bullshit. That one's the fake. Okay, Bob. I've, I've, I've seen
3: articles in the past about this paper. I mean, it's not, not new at all. Like, years ago, it clearly never really went anywhere. But I'm not sure why erasure is, is such a huge red flag for Jay. 3D permanent magnets a hundred times. That's just wicked powerful. Seems too high. I could totally see them 3D printing them, but a hundred times? Wow. Um, the diamond nano threads, I'm not following uh, the logic here. You say that they're much more flexible and therefore uh, more potential applications. I, that I agree with, but including, I mean, the, the space elevators, it's more about strength and, and creating one continuous um, thread. It's not so much flexibility. I mean, sure, it's important, but not not critical. It's more about strength and the f- and creating one single thread. It's uh, the second one. This one's killing me. The three D magnets. I could I could see them doing that, but n- not a hundred times more powerful. Right, I'm going to say that one's fake. It's just too too powerful.
0: Okay, Evan. Uh, Bob, I think I'm with you on that. That's what stuck out to me. A hundred times more powerful. Uh, that's extreme. From what I know of magnets, um, the fact that they created uh, them with 3D printing is really, really cool. Necessary for, you know, the what we have in store for future 3D printing. Uh, regarding the other ones, the nanotubes and the space elevator, I, that's it's, it's neat. It seems plausible. I don't have any problem with that. You know, not that I know. And then the uh, paper that can be completely erased and reused up to 40 times. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that one's going to turn out to be right. I think the 100 times for the 3D printing is going to be the fiction.
4: And Kara. Okay, diamond nano threads thinner than carbon nanotubes, more flexible, have more applications. I mean, diamond and carbon. Diamond is carbon, so I'm assuming it's just about the way they're organized. It's not actual diamonds there. Um Yeah, I mean, everybody talked about how carbon nanotubes were going to make a freaking space elevator. I wish we would get off of this space elevator thing. But sure, if people (laughs) talked about that with carbon nanotubes, I'm sure they're saying the same thing about diamond nano threads. If diamond nano threads are somehow superior than carbon nanotubes, Uh, 3D printed permanent magnet. Am I like really off base? That what can I ask? What is a permanent magnet?
1: It's just not like not an electromagnet. Not an electromagnet. Yeah, it's like a magnet. It's like a a bar magnet. magnet. Yeah, Yeah, okay. okay.
4: All right. Cool. Um, so they 3D printed some magnets. So 3D printed metal that has magnetic property and it's over a 100 times more powerful than traditionally made magnets of the same. How? How would it achieve that if it's like cast and melted versus 3D printed? I don't understand. Maybe some sort of lattice structure having holes in it would make it more powerful. That I don't get. And then um, non-toxic paper. That's pretty low cost. God, there's so many descriptions in here it could be that this is the fiction because it's a high cost non-toxic paper that can be printed or it could be that it's low cost and non-toxic but it can only be reused 20 times so that one you know it it strikes me as something that could be wrong because there's opportunities for them to be wrong but it also strikes me as something that like how do we not have reusable paper already come on it's cloth right like cloth paper like why couldn't we do that i mean that's what dollar bills are. So I don't know. I think I'm going to go with the magnet one because in my feeble brain, I can't figure out how 3D printing something as opposed to casting it would make it more powerful. Okay.
1: So you all agree on the first one. So we'll start there. New studies find mm-hmm. that diamond threads, which are even thinner than carbon nanotubes, are much more flexible and therefore have more potential applications, including possible use in building a space elevator. You all think this one is science? even though Bob has some reservations about this one. And this one is science. Yay. This is very cool. That's awesome. (laughs) Tell me about it. So, yeah, carbon nanothreads. This is uh, even better than – I mean diamond nanothread. even better than carbon nanotubes. Yeah, it's not actually a diamond, but the, the structure of the carbon atoms is similar to the structure in a diamond, which is why they call it that. They're thinner. They're, they're so basically a one-dimensional material, right? Hence the uh, thread. Uh, it's uh, carbon atoms arranged in a very, very tight lattice. Now the innovation here, and this uh, is what the research is—the is recent research—is they figured out by by putting like hydrogen atoms in certain intervals in this carbon lattice. You basically are adding little hinges which make the whole thing very flexible. And you can adjust the flexibility by how far you space the hinges, right? How far apart do you space them? The problem with carbon nanotubes is that they're brittle. They're not very flexible. And remember we talked about the whole unzipping problem with them, right? Yeah. Which is why it wouldn't wouldn't be great for the space elevator. I cried Uh, that day. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but Bob, you could you could dry those tears because apparently diamond <laughs> nano threads are the solution. So, so, I mean, obviously, this is still in the early stage stages, but the the modeling is really looking very promising, and they're talking about using this. It's like really, it's a microscopic thread that you can use to make all kinds of things. Bulletproof vest. Bulletproof vests, obviously, on the short list that was mentioned. Medical applications, it, huge. You know, but also, you could use it to make rigid structures as well, like, you know, replacing steel and airplanes and whatever. Ooh, so, or like replacing carbon. It'd be even lighter than carbon fiber. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. This, this could be the, the new super material of the future. It's looking very, very promising. All right, let's, promising. Do, let's go. Roll is it, it
4: biodegradable? Out. That's my question. If it, this is going to replace plastic, is it going to be just as much of a disaster? Yeah,
1: probably. So, <laughs> oh, no. we won't worry about that. Let's go on. Number two, scientists <laughs> have created 3D-printed permanent magnets that are over 100 times more powerful than traditional. Made magnets of the same material. Jay thinks this one is science. The rest of you think this one is fiction. It's interesting though that you you a lot of assumptions. Uh, you know, Bob, Kara, and Evan in your oh, evaluation no. of this item, like uh, uh-huh. they're a hundred times more powerful than magnets made of the same material. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're powerful magnets because they, yeah. be <laughs> oh, no. they could be very they oh, could be very weak. Yeah. When they're made out of the material, that's, and that's true. Yeah, that okay. it's true. Very smart, and Steve. Yes. The, the way if, that,
3: if you can orient the magnetic fields individually, exactly. so that they all align. Yeah. Then it's exactly. crazy powerful, huh? well, Like that's, I said, that's, that's exactly it?
1: correct. It's that's how you get a magnet more powerful. You align everything in a much, uh, like a, uh, on a much like on a microscopic scale, and you so the fields aren't canceling each other out; they're all adding together. But this one is the fiction. Yeah, it baby. Is. <laughs> Whoa. They have 3D printed permanent magnets. That part is true. They're, they didn't make them a hundred times stronger though, but they mm. do have improved qualities. And the Shape. big innovation is that they reduce the waste. So when you injection mold a bar magnet, there's 30 to 50% of the material is wasted in that process. The 3D printing where they, they melt the uh, material and then extrude it into the, the shape of the magnet they're making has essentially zero waste. That's
3: so, awesome. Yeah, so yeah, so some good. expensive material, like rare materials.
1: Yeah, there's some rare materials in there. So saving the material is the huge deal for certain kinds of magnets. So that, that is a big deal. Uh, this is what Kara, this is a word that I learned at some point in our podcasting history and I love it. Do you know what sintering is? Yeah. Oh, sintering.
4: sintering. I know it's a mechanical um is that with a C application. Yeah, with a C. C right? I N T U R I N G right. So you so know you cool it it,
3: is. Cool it in water, yeah, it no, in water yes, or something. Oh, it is an S? Yeah, it's with an S. Steve is cooling it in water or something.
4: It's oh it? did I do a sintering thing? Is it like pouring liquid and then into plaster and then nope. thrusting it in water? That's something else. It's Bob.
1: when you uh soften metal by heating uh-huh. it. But not you. But you don't melt it. So the the Uh, metal, the little. So you make like a powder of a metal, and then you heat it so that it softens and gets gooey, and then you stick the pieces together.
4: I spelled it completely wrong. It's It's, S I N T. Yeah, S I N T. I I threw you off there. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was yeah. So
1: like for example, in historically, before they could make ovens hot enough to melt. Uh, um, uh, something like silver, they could still sinter it at a lower temperature. You could. Gotcha.
4: yeah. So you could kind of shape it a little. Yeah, more, exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So anyway, so a lot of these, these types of magnets are made from sintering the, the little pieces. You know, they make like little pieces, little beads of magnets and they center them together. But now they could just sort of melt it and extrude it and 3D print it. And again, it reduces the waste and has, they said it has superior properties, but it's stronger or whatever, but it, it's, uh, Uh, the magnetic field may be a little bit better, but it's not a hundred times. There's no way. I just totally made Mm. that up. (laughs) Okay. So all of that means that chemists have created low cost, (laughs) non-toxic paper that can be printed, completely erased and reused up to 40 times is science. And Bob, you're right that this is not really, this whole concept isn't new When I was doing my background research I saw like the almost identical news item from 2 years ago. Yeah. The o- yeah. the only difference was that they said they could reuse the paper 20 times and now it's 40 <laughs> times. <laughs> uh, it is basically the same technology. So this is this is a, the whole idea here isn't Incremental. new they're just they're incrementing yeah they they're, they're incrementing it. So, uh how it works is the the paper it, it will turn a from we go from white to a deep blue when exposed to ultraviolet light for 10 20 30 seconds. So you could essentially have like a a printer that where it prints one page at a time but it has to expose that page to to uh the ultraviolet light for 30 seconds, let's say, which is at the slow end of the range that they said. But that's which is slow. That's slow printing, you know, one page every 30 seconds. But, you know, it's not completely unworkable depending on how many pages you need to print out and how fast you need them the image will then fade over time left out in the open air it'll fade in about 3 days whoa um, you could oh, make weird. it you could make it fade faster over about 30 minutes by heating it so if at any point you need to Erase the page. You could just heat it, and and in 30 minutes, it'll be completely erased. Or you can add a material to the paper to make the image last longer. Then it will last up to 10 days, Um, but you can still never
4: make it permanent. No,
1: but it's not permanent. So 10 Mm. days—that's sort of like the longest time they could make it last at this point in time, Uh, right? So it's basically 30 minutes if you want to make it go away. 10 days if it just leaves because the it reacts with the oxygen in the air, and that makes it go away. So I guess you can keep it in an oxygen free environment if you wanted it. But the whole idea here is that you, it's something that you don't need to have for right. very long. And then you yeah. can use it up to 40 times before the paper starts to break down or the, it stops working.
3: Like an in-store promotion or so yeah, a, a, te- a meeting, a, you know, a meeting where you need yeah. to print stuff.
1: And the, the whole totally idea here part. is to reduce the uh, recycling of paper, you know, bec- and production mm-hmm. of paper. So I, I didn't realize that paper, is there's more paper in the recycling stream than all other recyclable things combined? Did you know that? Uh,
2: Makes
4: sense. Yeah, sure, I lots of
2: things
3: are made of paper.
4: But paper is also 100% recyclable if it is not if it doesn't have wax or food yeah. stains or things like that.
1: It still costs a lot I'm, of I'm, energy to to re- yeah, it recycle, does. It and does. a lot of it does end up in a landfill eventually. If you could reuse paper 10, 20, 30, 40 times, that would reduce the stream by that much but honestly i don't think this tech. this is interesting you know chemistry and proof of concept here but i just don't see this being used i don't think it's practical like you're going to wait 30 minutes to i mean you're going to wait 30 seconds to print one page and then it you know it's going to fade after a certain amount of time and then you're going to save those pages recollect them put them back in your printer it's just uh, i just don't see people doing this
4: can you hand write on it
1: no, it only, it only mm. works with this system. You use the UV you light, can't get the so you need a dedicated pen. device. Yeah, I so said you could just shine UV light on it, and you can make like a, you can have a template, you know, so it blocks parts of the paper, so you could use it for making images and stuff. Which, you know, I could see this being a fun toy.
4: If you could handwrite it, it would make sense because every desk could have this, like, basically self-erasing notepad on it. And that's a great way to just jot down a phone number, jot down, you know, just the little kinds of things that you have to scribble on paper to throw away. You could just have it permanently there. But if you can't handwrite it, it's silly.
1: Yeah, but you could do that on your iPad, what you just described.
4: You can. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. You can.
1: So I just don't see it. I, I don't. See, I don't see exactly <laughs> what niche this would fill, and that's always tricky. Somebody might think of a niche that it fills. I don't know. if I can't think of one.
4: But yeah, that's like the number one to you know, if you want to be a successful inventor, right? You're supposed to solve a real problem, not invent a problem to solve. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of what this feels like it's doing.
1: Or it's just solving it in a way that's just more trouble than it's worth. Yeah. I'd rather just recycle the damn paper. Yeah. Well,
4: Let's good night, you. everybody. <laughs> 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 or just not use as much paper. Like you said, yeah. use your iPad.
1: It's funny because I was writing about um, technology in one of my recent blogs. And it's like, yeah, it's like, remember the paperless office? Remember that trope from 30 years ago? <laughs> yeah. That, like, we're using more paper than ever, than ever. <laughs> um, okay. Good job, everyone. Jay, <clears throat> you you took the lead. You took the lead. You're at the You had the pole position. Yeah. The Vanguard. And... That's the dangerous position to be in sometimes. I'm, not, I'm fine with it. Still. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'm happy for you. <laughs> Evan, give us a quote.
0: I'm a scientific expert. That means I know nothing about absolutely everything.
4: I don't get it. <laughs>
0: Written by Arthur C. Clarke. Spoken by Dr. Haywood Floyd. 2001: A Space Odyssey.
1: Huh. So I don't remember that from the movie. Was that was just in the book. No, the
0: book. Yeah, yeah that's in the, in the book. book. Yeah. that is in the book. Right. Good book. It's uh, it's the respect, I think, that the character is showing for science and the scientific method in that nothing is absolute in a gotcha. sense, in that we are all, in a way, amateurs when it comes to these things. So it means I know nothing about absolutely everything.
1: Yeah, I think it's also just if you're a generalist, you, by definition, you have to have a superficial understanding of everything, right? And it points uh, to
4: the fact that science underlies everything. Yeah, like mm-hmm. this, right. there is science in every single thing you can point to.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting quote. You have to think, yeah, have to th- th- so. think about, yeah, to really to really explore it a little bit. Cool. So, guys, when we mm-hmm. record next week's show, we will probably know who the next president of the United States is going to be. That's right. Unless it's yeah, contested. It will
0: don't be contested. Get, don't get that started. is my prediction. Oh boy. <laughs> Buckle up your seatbelts. It's going to be a wild ride. It
4: might only be contested by one dude, but yeah. it's going to be contested. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. A lot okay. of people are
1: saying, I can't wait for this nightmare to be over, and I get it, but my fear is that it's not going to be over. This is just going no. to be—we're going to go into phase two. You
0: know? Yeah, well, you know, and conspiracy theories will be abound, so be ready oh for anything Democracy and everything.
4: Option. So vote. Everyone but vote. Go, but get yeah. out and vote
1: Whatever. For whoever you want, just vote. Yeah, it'd be, yep. this is an election that I think people need to make their wishes heard.
4: And it's not just the president on the ballot. Remember that. We're, we're looking at our, our representatives. <laughs> we're looking at different <laughs> yeah. initiatives in your local area. Yeah. I know. It, there's a lot that can come out of this election.
2: It's sad that we have to remind people of things like that. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say, though, that some people have pointed out the
1: fact that we don't have that – usually have a high voter turnout is actually a good sign. It means there's not a lot at stake because we have a stable republic. Right. It's not like our lives are really going to change that much depending on who's the president. And that's actually a sign of the stability and robustness of our system. interesting angle.
4: Except this time. Well, this time,
1: yeah, the stakes are a little bit higher this This time. I agree uh, with that. This is a wild one. So. Yeah. This is an atypical. Have plenty of Alka-Seltzer ready. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, we'll see you all next week. Thanks for joining me this week. Thanks, Doctor. Thanks, Steve. night, guys. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at skepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.